In this Climate Gen episode, I speak with the UK's Royal Astronomer and member of the House of Lords, Martin Rees. We discuss his recent book, If Science is to Save Us, covering a number of topics from the application of science, the role of politics, and how both engage with civil society. These three groups, the expert community, the policymakers, and the citizens are vital for the advancement of a civilized society. And Martin, unusually, is a member of each constituency. One thing he says, among many, in his book is that when any expert speaks outside of his own expertise, he immediately speaks as a citizen. This is prescient in a world of competing opinions. We also discuss issues such as climate urgency, energy, expanding academia, geoengineering, the necessity for helping the global south, and why Martin was not that impressed with the UK's Bletchley Park AI conference. A reminder that you can also pre-order my book Cop Out, How Governments Have Failed the People on Climate, from the link in the notes. Cop Out takes the reader deep into the blue zone to reveal what lies between the rhetoric of world leaders and the scientific realities we are being left to face. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Francis from the Woodwell Research Institute in the US about her new work looking at weather whiplash events in the North Atlantic and Europe and how they fit into a broader, worsening climatic outlook for 2024. Thank you. Hey, Martin, <laughs> in your recent book, If Science is to Save Us, there's this sort of implication of urgency and that we do actually need saving. And I just wanted to ask if you could identify the key threats that represent, in your view, the, the catastrophic risks for society. Well, I think the first thing is the number of people in the world is much higher. It was below 4 billion 50 years ago. It's now 8 billion. And we each have a heavier imprint on the planet. And so uh, we are having a more rapid effect on changing the climate, the biodiversity of the world and all that. So things are getting faster changing than they were, and it's more urgent to address them seriously. In terms of the population, mm -hmm. I mean, there's been quite a lot of work done, but actually it's people, people like me, in, <laughs> people like us in the Western yes, world yes. Who, who produce a lot of the emissions. Mm. And in a way, we have to bring down our development. Well, that's right. We in the West, of course, are very uh, um, prolific in the use of energy. And we could lose use less, and of course we can uh, use the technology to eventually be uh, carbon free. But one of the th things I address in my book is that what's very, very important, and this is a great geopolitical challenge, is to ensure that the global south, which at the moment is not emitting very much, but needs to have more energy per capita now in order to develop, we want to ensure that they can leapfrog directly to clean energy and not go through an intermediate stage of fossil fuel use. Because if that happens, then by 2050, it could be that we in the North have got to net zero, but the 4 billion people who will be in the global South, they may be producing as much CO2 then as we are now. So the world would be no nearer to net zero than it is today. So it's crucially important that we in the North do all we can, not just to achieve net zero ourselves, but to ensure by aid and uh, economic collaboration, etc., that the um, global south can make this transition and can develop and have a decent life without needing to burn fossil fuels. So that, that in my view, is the most uh, important challenge, even more important than achieving net zero ourselves. So that's important. And uh, this needs high technology. And of course, uh, 
we need high technology for agriculture and all kinds of other reasons as well. And that really crosses over with justice issues, which make up a large part of this whole discussion around climate change and right. action. Um, how much, from the, your perspective, from what you've seen, have we done in terms of we, the wealthy West, in terms of addressing specifically that problem? Well, not enough, obviously, because the uh, effects of climate change are going to be more serious um, on the poorer parts of the world. The places which uh, are going to be too hot to live at all without air conditioning are mainly the equator, of course, and in the global south. And we need to ensure that uh, they are able to uh, get protection from the changing climate. And uh, this could obviously be done in aid and also by a sort of mega Marshall Plan, like what the Americans did for Europe after World War II, uh, whereby there's massive transfer from the wealthy north to the south. But not just neo-colonialism, we've got to somehow help them with their technology so they can uh, develop industry themselves and uh, manufacturing. And certainly one thing we can do, and this is where universities can help, is by developing links with African universities so as to reduce what's happening now, which is that at least half the talented people in those countries are leaving. And so they will not be able to build up the technical expertise they will need. So I think we've got to help those countries to develop the technology and the resources so that they can achieve net zero with the latest technology. And of course, we in this country should forge ahead with um, uh, new technologies to make solar energy cheaper and to develop new kinds of energy storage, etc. Okay. And we'll come back to energy storage, but just on that role for universities. Mm -hmm. And that, that I have seen some elements of that with Cambridge, actually, and mm -hmm. countries in Africa. But what you're talking about really is, is a sort of knowledge sharing network. Yes. And that is something, it's kind of low hanging fruit in a way, because universities do talk to each other. Well, that's right. They do. And the WHO and bodies like that do this. But um, there is a, an interesting example dating back about 50 years, the uh, great Pakistani physicist Abdus Salam started in Trieste, an institute which was intended to enable scientists from the developing world to spend four months of the year in uh, an environment where they met each other and could keep in touch with the latest developments. That had a focus on theoretical physics simply because that was uh, Salam's expertise, but there's no particular reason why that shouldn't be done in other fields uh, to have links between institutes in um, the developing world and those in Europe and North America. And of course, there are already some for um, world health, insects and things like that in Africa. And we just need more of those. And of course, that will help with uh, increasing the number of people trained in those countries as engineers, etc. And let them feel they have opportunities in those countries. So we want to uh, facilitate them because we've made things difficult for them in the north by our emissions and all that. And we've got to, to help them now to develop. And one thinks of energy, but it's just important, I think, to uh, think about food production because uh, it's true that food production has doubled due to the Green Revolution, etc., in the last 50 years. But the population of the world is going to grow still more between now and 2050 probably to 9 billion or so, and many are undernourished now. So we probably need to think about a further doubling of world food production. And uh, that's really got to be done uh, without using too much energy and without encroaching too much 
on natural habitats and forests and all that. So we need what people call sustainably intensive agriculture, which is high tech. And of course, when you say it's quite, <laughs> quite yeah. easy to say we need to double, but in, in reality, we're looking at potential shocks to the food system. That's right. And mm. that's a, a big risk, depending on where those, and again, I suppose it's the poorest people who will be most exposed to those. Mm -hmm. It comes down to this thing is that we kind of know what we've got to do, but we always seem to be not quite doing what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. yes. And when I spoke to you some years ago, I was quite... I'd say, I don't know if I was shocked, but I was a bit saddened by your real view on emissions because you said, I think emissions are going to keep going up. And you, you, you gave a scenario. Mm. Can you, in 2023, give your view now on emissions? Because they have done what you said. Well, they have been going up, haven't they? Yes. yes. Well, I mean, of course, uh, we all know from recent rhetoric and politics uh, that the chance of meeting the intermediate deadlines by 2035 are getting dimmer, and uh, we certainly won't be able to limit the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. That looks very unlikely now. And uh, what is concerning, of course, is not just the UK, because we are not much more than 1% of the world's emissions, uh, but the global north has to cut back so that the emissions are going down. And that's pretty hard if you want to go right down to zero by 2050. And of course, as I said earlier, uh, we've got to sort of bend the curve so that the same thing happens for the countries in the global south, uh, which are certainly going to need more energy than they have now per capita. Okay. In your book, you highlight three important groups in society, and they're not exclusive yeah. to each mm -hmm. other, but the <laughs> civil society, the expert group, and politicians, <laughs> policymakers. Yes. You're involved in all three of those groups, so you've got a good understanding yes. of how yes. they operate. Yes. Why can't we, or couldn't we before, and can't we now, say, why well, we're just going to change some structural policies and, and bring down our emissions? Why, why has that not happened? Well, of course, uh, to go back to the, the three, then, of course, the other scientific experts, and I'm not an expert on that particular field, of course, but I sort of follow uh, what's going on there. And the case that uh, we need to do something urgently is getting more compelling. But, of course, there is a choice of responses to predicted climate change, a mix of um, adaptation and mitigation, and which technology we use. Do we use nuclear, for instance? That's a big issue. Um, if you want to produce a base load without producing CO2 emissions, all those things are policy questions. Yes. Um, but uh, of course, if you think of the general public, they've got to care because politicians won't respond. They won't risk losing votes unless they know the public cares. And the public, of course, does care in an emergency. So scientists do get traction from politicians in an episode like COVID-19. But in general, and I know some scientists who've served as scientific advisors to government, and they normally don't get very much attention because politicians have a difficult time, lots of urgent conflicting issues to deal with. And so long-term issues get pushed down, even though they are very, very important. We shouldn't discount them because uh, most young people do care about what the world will be like when their grandchildren grow old, and that'll be the next century. And so we've got to ensure that uh, long-term concerns like that are fed into politics. And one thing I emphasize in my book is that scientists are, on the whole, not very charismatic or effective. But what we can do is try and stimulate those who are to uh, 
raise their voices a bit. In democracies, that's the way it has to go. The public has to care, and that'll pressure politicians to go. It'll be a, a vote winner, not a vote loser. Okay. I thought it was very interesting, actually, the David Attenborough, because the programs, I mean, they've spanned much more than my lifetime, but they furnished our nation and actually quite a lot of other countries as well with the imagery of the natural world. Mm, yeah, and yes. this year we had a tragedy in Antarctica where 10,000 penguins died. Mm -hmm, yes. And now they're on the critically endangered list and expect yes, to yes, be extinct. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm, yes. And in a way, I think as someone reading that news, there was an empathy, which I would only have gotten through Attenborough's films, mm. really, because yes, otherwise yes. I wouldn't really know what it looks like. Yes, or, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, he didn't, as it were, come over strong on climate until quite recently that's right, in yeah. his programs. But I think he made a distinctive contribution to the specific issue of ocean pollution. And, for instance, the iconic picture of the albatross returning to its nest and coughing up for its young, not the long-for nutritious food, but bits of plastic, etc. That's an iconic image, rather like the uh, polar bear on the melting ice flow. And... Uh, uh, I think, had it not been for images like that from those programs on the oceans, Michael Gove, not the most enlightened politician you can imagine, did when he was Minister for the Environment, introduce legislation to ban uh, non-reusable drinking straws and things like that. And I mean, he wouldn't have done that and wasted intellectual capital and emotional capital on that, had it not been that he realized that lots of people were mindful of the problem of ocean pollution, okay. uh, largely through Attenborough's programs. I'd say one of the heirs to Attenborough is Chris Packham, yes. and he's treading the line between activist and nature presenter. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so he's kind of this sort of this next yep. generation of activist personalities, mm -hmm. if you like. Because the other end, of, there's Just Stop Oil, there's these sort of people spraying and mm -hmm. all the rest of yes. it. Wearing your House of Lords hat, what's your response when you see these kinds of forms of activism? Um, well, I think some are kind of productive. And I think they accept that, you know, uh, um, going on top of a tube train and stopping it, but going to work and uh, coming closer to home. Um, some of the um, local activists, uh, perhaps you were there, they, they uh, uh, interrupted a lecture by uh, one of the, the local climate scientists to us audience that were on the whole very supportive of strong action. So that was really kind of productive, I thought, to, to annoy an audience that was on their side already. But what about when they spray a government building orange or something like this, which, you know, it's a water yes, solid. Yes. Um, well, I mean, again, one's slightly more ambivalent about it, but I don't think it really helps. Because I was interested as well, in your book, you don't just talk about the hard sciences, you talk about social sciences and mm -hmm. say we need more. The social sciences are also saying, well, some of these activists are actually quite disturbed by what they're seeing in the scientific mm, literature. Mm, mm, yes. And it's driving this yeah, action. Mm, 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 yes. And yet our government are not very empathetic. <laughs> no, no. They're locking them up, basically. Well, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, the government isn't adequately responsive. I think we would all agree mm. that this is a, a big challenge. And unless we make different decisions in the next 10 or 20 years, then there's a risk of tipping points, etc. And that's a very serious risk because a tipping point means that even if subsequently you bring down the CO2 to its pre-industrial level, it's not guaranteed that the climate goes down again. You could find a new equilibrium at some much higher temperature. Uh, so we do have to realize the complexities and that uh, any major perturbation of global climate in a way we can't really predict uh, may cause irreversible consequences. You've just 
articulated what a tipping point is. And I don't know how many politicians could do that. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. And yet the implications, the risk factors of what you've just described yes, yes. are so widespread, not just for humans, but for all biodiversity and, mm -hmm, and so on yes. in the biosphere. Yes. Why are we not able? And I think this is what your book is about in some ways, mm -hmm. is tackling this problem of making sure that our policymakers are responding. Yes. Well, part of the problem is we don't know the exact details. I mean, the, uh, we understand present-day climate pretty well, but we don't understand how it may change on a regional basis. I mean, we can say that it's going to um, lead to a warmer world because of the more CO2, and that means more water vapor, etc., which also pushes up, but cloud cover is going to change, basic circulation patterns are going to change, and we don't really know. We've been surprised already, for instance, by the, the very drastic rise in temperature in some northern latitudes in the last two or three years. And that's because of the, um, I think it's the smaller difference between the polar regions and lower latitudes, which means that the polar vortex makes bigger excursions from its equilibrium position. And th that's a difficult thing to predict. And so I think this incidentally is going to be um, uh, something which those who want to do large-scale geoengineering are up against because they can't be completely sure what the consequence is going to be. But we do have to improve our, our modeling because we are far more sure of what's going to happen than we were 20 years ago through computer modeling and understanding the physics of clouds and all that. But I think the problem is that no honest scientist can say exactly what's going to happen. It, it was similar at the beginning of COVID-19. The medics didn't know exactly what it was going to be like, etc. They gradually learned as it went along. And the climate issue is a slow motion version of that. We do know, though, that we shouldn't be issuing new licenses for, for fossil fuel. And uh, yet we, had a so, yeah, yes. we probably know that the king wouldn't be too comfortable making that statement right. because he's mm -hmm. aware yes. of the science. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's a sort of disparity. Mm -hmm. In terms of coming back to geoengineering, mm -hmm. it's a really good example of complex risk. Dr. James Hansen has recently said the cleanup of all the, the sulfur from pollutants from fossil fuels has meant that we're getting this little spike in temperatures and it's mm -hmm. causing a knock-on effect of impacts. Yes, which, yes. And that could tip us, could be one of these sort of tipping point threshold mm -hmm. type mm -hmm. things. Yes. Now, what I want to ask is how can this important and very consequential topic be properly considered by society at large? Because at the moment, we have, a, I think they refer to themselves as a sort of geo-clique, mm -hmm. and they, they are having a lot of discussions, mm -hmm. but, it's, but they do have a, a set view. Yes. And yes. then it's polarized between other people in the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. yes, yes. And we need a proper conversation. Well, I mean, I think the expert community clearly has to have internal dialogue. And uh, I think uh, scientists always say we need more research, but this is a context where where we certainly do compared to the amount spent on research in other environmental areas and the amount spent on making the world safer in other respects conventionally, very little is being spent on uh, this research and climate modeling. And I think it's clear that we do need to understand more uh, what the consequences are of these different pollutants and of uh, tweaking the climate in different ways. And I think everyone would agree that one has to try and get 
as much of a consensus as possible among the experts. Mm -hmm. When the experts themselves disagree, the public is understandably unwilling to accept that there's a definite case for changing their lifestyles. So I think the important thing is to uh, prioritize improving understanding so that the predictions are more reliable and that we know exactly what is the consequence of particular remedies and then politicians will be more inclined to focus on the optimum one if there's a group of scientists speaking in unison, as it were. Okay, and we've talked a little bit about UK national politics, the mm -hmm. links to scientists yeah, and yeah. to civil society. On the wider scale between nations, we obviously, we need a UN framework that actually works. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I mean, this year, a lot of, I've interviewed quite a lot of scientists about this, and they're saying that the COP process has been hijacked by the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. you know, it's quite extreme language, but mm -hmm. he is the CEO of the National Oil mm -hmm. Company for Abu Dhabi. Yes. In that light, how do we take everything we've said about on the national scale and amplify it? Because all the countries, major fossil fuel producing countries are expanding production. Mm -hmm. And we're going to a conference where there's a lot of rhetoric yeah, yeah. and Attenborough himself was involved mm -hmm. in that rhetoric in COP26, mm -hmm. but there's no, the action never follows suit. Yeah. And for when you see that, what do you think? Well, I don't completely despair, but it's going to be very difficult, obviously, um, to persuade countries to abandon the way they get energy now and use something which they regard as unfamiliar and more costly. Uh, the, the obvious way to uh, achieve the transition we want would be to uh, move advanced technology so that the renewables were cheaper. Because if they were cheaper, then of course there'd be uh, no contest and uh, all countries would be happy to um, adopt them. So I think uh, that's why I mentioned that R&D in this country in particular, where we, we have lots of expertise, the purpose in doing it is not just so that we can get to net zero. Yeah. 1% of the world's emissions or a bit more. But if we can uh, accelerate the time when these um, bits of equipment are cheaper than extracting fossil fuels, uh, then that will really make a difference. And, in, and it really is a case of helping ourselves by helping others, because we, ben mm. we are beneficiaries of that. Well, yes, well, obviously, the, the total CO2, we don't know where it comes from. And so if we're the only country that uh, achieves net zero, it'll make no difference at all to the world. Yes. But I think this is a context where we are all in it together. And of course, if one's thinking about adaptation, then of course, a country benefits from what it spends. If you build dikes, sea walls, benefits your country. Whereas a mitigation doesn't particularly benefit your own country. It benefits the world in all parts uniformly. And so one has to ensure that most countries are on board, but I think the best way to do that is if one can change the economics. If that doesn't happen, I must admit I am pessimistic because there's very strong pressure, obviously, for, for the poor countries to develop and industrialize. And if we want that, because um, if we continue with the situation when there's huge inequalities between the global south and the north, then that's a recipe for continuing battles of all kinds and mass migration and, and all the rest. And that's because um, unlike a hundred years ago, when people in the middle of Africa didn't know much about the rest of the world, they didn't realize the injustice of their fate. Now, what most people do have is access to information through the internet and the ability to travel. And that therefore means that uh, if we can't ensure that their standard of living 
involves a decreasing gap with what we enjoy in a country like this, then we are going to encounter mass and justified disaffection and mass migration um, from the countries in the global south. And of course, just to add to that, it's hard to think of a more inspiring ideal for young engineers than providing clean, cheap energy for the entire world. I think to go back to something which I think we must keep in mind is what do we think about nuclear? Because uh, nuclear is a topic where there's a division of opinion at all levels of expertise. You know, there's some subjects where people who don't know very much disagree, but uh, the experts all have a more or less consensus. That's true about climate change, for instance. Um, but in the context of nuclear, then my impression, I don't know if it's yours, is that at every level of expertise, from people who know nothing up to genuine experts, there is a division about whether we should build large numbers of small modular reactors and things like that. Uh, it's a divisive issue. And I think to debate that is very important because that's obviously, if it became a way of getting energy cheaply, as well as carbon-free, uh, is something that we shouldn't dismiss. Okay. And can I ask you what your view is on nuclear? Um, I genuinely am not enough of an expert to have a view, but I certainly think that at the present state, we ought to encourage R&D into fourth-generation nuclear because the um, nuclear power stations now, many of them date back to 1960s designs and hardly any have been built at all in the last 20 years. And so it's fairly clear that there could be improvements. Um, in fact, things have gone the wrong way because what they've done is added bells and whistles to the old designs to make them safer. And the, the French company tried to build more modern, safer ones, one in Finland, and then there's the one, the one here in the UK, and they're getting more expensive and more delayed and things. So I think they're heading in the wrong direction by trying to improve the old designs. But if it's possible, and I don't really know reliably what is the case, to uh, have small modular reactors which are safe, can be manufactured in bulk, and can be competitive with oil and gas, uh, then I know there's a problem of waste and all that, but I think that should be considered. And so I would certainly support R&D of, um, of those and the other fourth-generation nuclear designs, which I think we should consider. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. A bit off our subject within the news very much is um, uh, AI and all that. And uh, I'm not worried about the machine outsmarting us, but I am worried about us getting over-dependent on elaborate computer networks and if they're subject to cyber attacks or just have breakdowns or have bugs in the program, then they could shut down large chunks of the electricity grid or the internet and things like that, which would lead to complete social disruption very quickly. And so that's a case when we've got to be really, really sure that the risks are low because the consequences are high. And one feature of our present-day world compared to past worlds is that the whole of the globe is interconnected in the way it wasn't in the past. You may know there's um, Jerry Darman's book on collapse, but only one constant at most collapses uh, because there's no interconnection. Whereas now uh, we know very well that uh, a serious um, pandemic could affect the whole world and so could a breakdown in the kind of computer systems that we need for the uh, electricity grid air traffic control, the internet, and all those things. And so um, that's a long answer in saying that uh, we've got to ensure resi resilience, which may mean more redundancy and more inefficiency. But nonetheless, 
the stakes are so high okay. that we've got to pay extra to be resilient. And were you impressed at all by the Bletchley Park conference? That's just I didn't follow it closely, but to be honest, not, because I think it had too much emphasis on the flaky far future of superintelligent machines. I think for a long time we have to worry more about human stupidity than artificial intelligence. And um, by that I mean that there could be some flaws in the design or programming uh, which lead to unintended consequences. And so we do have to worry very much about over-dependence. Whereas for where we saw this in the air traffic control breakdown, there was a, a small effect one day of a few weeks before we're talking now. But uh, we need to avoid becoming too dependent on centralized, complicated systems. Okay. In the book, you, you step back at times to look through the this, this sort of cosmic lens mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at our various predicaments in, in that sort of context. Mm -hmm. Do you currently see realistic pathways through the risk landscape that you and your colleagues warn of? We're talking mm -hmm. about the Centre for, um, yes. for uh, mm. Existential yes, Risk. Yes. So I think you say there's possibility for utopia or a sort of a dark age, mm -hmm. a future dark mm -hmm. age. Yes. Where do you sit on that? Well, obviously, it's possible to have either of those. And the worry is that the stakes are higher because uh, science empowers us more than it ever did in the past. And therefore, the consequences which it has are greater, and they could be very positive or very negative. And we need science um, if it's um, well applied in order to uh, develop our civilization and cope with the population we have in the world now. Uh, but of course, it does lead to all the kinds of threats, the uh, threats to the environment and uh, biodiversity, which are slow acting, but they're caused by us all collectively. Um, plus also the uh, threat that's been looming over for 50 years of some kind of nuclear war, but augmented by the um, possibility of engineered pandemics and uh, cyber attacks on very large-scale grids. So, so the, all kinds of these things. And I think all we can do is ensure that the politicians are mindful of these and resources are applied in order to uh, reduce the probability of these disasters. I mean, we shouldn't be in a world where there's far more people working on road safety than on these extreme threats, where there's probably only about 100 people in the world who are some 20 in our place here, a few, a few in similar places, whose prime motive is to uh, think about these most extreme threats and to uh, suggest how we can minimize their likelihood. Okay. And on top of your own book, there is this new volume that's been put out by the Centre for um, the Study of Existential yes, yes. Risk. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying here is is that kind of work needs to be closer to to policy thinking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, certainly the people in our uh, small centre, they've had more credibility post-COVID because before that, they could be dismissed as doom mongers. But we have had, of course, in COVID, a global catastrophe. And moreover, it's fairly obvious that it could have been far worse because there are some viruses that kill half the people who get them, whereas this kill one or two percent. So you could have something which is far, far worse. And I think uh, that's caused our work to be taken more seriously and more people to take these issues as something that policymakers should be aware of. And I think more generally, I would say it has a message for universities because um, universities are primarily there to teach people and give them expertise 
um, but also to research and try and understand the world. Uh, and we want to do that. Um, but we also want to change the world. And, uh, and so the kind of people who work at a place like our center are people who um, may not see themselves as lifetime academics. Uh, they are interested in, in the science. We need their ideas, but we also need them to think about the appropriate response and to interact with politicians and the public and do the kind of things which are done in, uh, in think tanks and pressure groups and NGOs as well as in universities. And so I think universities have to perhaps uh, um, broaden the criteria they use for sort of uh, valuing people's contribution so that it's not just um, research papers in a narrow sense, um, but also appreciates the people who are doing these sorts of things to raise public consciousness and uh, improve policy making and give it a firmer scientific basis. Okay. And this is really just to end on. But yeah. You're obviously in a very unique position because you're here in Cambridge where there is so much going on around. Mm -hmm. And as we were saying before, universities and network yes, themselves. Yes, yes. Then you go into London, into the House of Lords, and you must talk to a lot of other people there. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you're a source of information? Do you find that your colleagues there are well, have a broad spread of knowledge? How do you um, experience yes. this sort of osmosis of knowledge? Um, well, I think uh, um, the knowledge is spreading. I think far more people uh, understand the, these things. And uh, uh, certainly, if you think about AI, where, no, our genuine risks, I'm not, I'm not dismissing those risks. That's become very much on the agenda in the last two years, hasn't it? Um, climate change, I think, has gone up on the agenda in the last few years um, due to the charismatic influences and the fact that the climate is manifestly changing already in a way that wasn't so apparent a few years ago. Um, so I, I think there is going to be more motive for taking seriously these threats and uh, even this slow-acting natural ones, you know, like the um, frog in the warming tank. And we mustn't be uh, in the state of not saving ourselves until it's too late. But isn't that really the role of organizations like Caesar? Yeah. Is to tell the frogs to get... <laughs> well, yes, but, but as I say, we, uh, uh, we can't directly influence the wide public. That's why we've got to act through the media, influencers, and through politicians. Okay. Um, and uh, ensure that these are important things on the agenda, which they weren't a few years ago. Okay, well, <laughs> thank you very much. And I hope people do read your book because it goes into the nitty gritty of how these all these interconnections mm -hmm. work. And I, I found it very interesting indeed, mm -hmm. so thank you. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. A reminder that you can also pre-order my book, Cop Out, How Governments Have Failed the People on Climate, from the link in the notes.